Five, so let, let's get there because Paul is doing something uh, really, really, um, I guess you could say rather odd <clears throat> because this whole section beginning at verse 6 is um, what he is seeking to do is to underscore the love of God. He is, he is seeking to communicate to the people of God that they are loved. But he is doing that in a very odd kind of way. Uh, he is he's trying to assure the people of God that they're loved and that God loves uh, sinners. But to do that, he is his method is he seeks to underscore the unworthiness of the objects of the love of God. So he's he's trying to outline or or give us a glimpse of the unworthiness to assure us. That the, that the love of God is, that, that our unworthiness, that our um, flaws are not going to run him away or run him off or um, um, in, in any way diminish his love for us. So um, he says in verse 6, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Uh, And not only that. But we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Um, What Paul is seeking to do, his purpose in this little section, is to show the awful condition of men for whom Jesus died. And uh, by so doing, demonstrate the magnitude of the love of God. A little odd little twist on the part of this uh, this grand pastor. So what, the way I want to start tonight is go back and, and kind of mention a couple of things that I mentioned last week but did not pursue very deeply. And that is to, his theme or his idea is the way to emphasize and to, um, uh, to make larger the love of God is to underscore the unworthiness of the objects of the love of God. So if that's Paul's... Um, uh, purpose, then I think it would be a good thing for us to make sure that we understand all those terms that he uses here about the unworthiness of the objects. The first one he uses is the one without strength. And I said last week that's, a, that's a, uh, an allusion to a doctrine that is held uh, very dearly by most camps of uh, conservative Christianity known as total depravity. Uh, I always like to use an illustration when I'm, when I'm illustrating total depravity. An illustration of a bunch of guys playing poker in uh, back in the the uh, the barn of Uncle Jake, uh, because their wives really didn't want them to play um, poker, and so they had to kind of sneak around to do it, and so they would gather kind of uh, uh, secretively um, and and play poker without their wives knowing it, and so. Um, the, the scene is this. A bunch of guys gathered around a table playing poker, and they locked the door. Uh, and uh, everyone around the table has a key to the door in their pockets. And as they are seated playing poker, someone um, 
someone who's holding a, you know, a pretty uh, strong hand says, I smell smoke. And um, uh, somebody says, I smell smoke too. So somebody gets up from the table, goes to the window, looks out, and, and sure enough, there's a fire next door, and, and it's kind of headed their way. And so they get kind of nervous, and they say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't, don't worry. Uh, let's, take, let's finish this hand, uh, because, as you know, we all have keys in our pockets. Now, same story, change one thing. Take the key out of everybody's pocket. So they're sitting around playing cards, and somebody's got a good hand, and, and somebody goes... I smell smoke. Somebody else says, I, I smell smoke too. Somebody goes to the window and sees, sure enough, there's a fire next door and it's headed their way. Now, here's the point. Of those two groups, which one of them do you think would have a greater grasp of the love of God? The ones who were told that you can come to God anytime you get ready. You just when you when you get ready, you just you just come on, um, you know, uh, whenever whenever it strikes your fancy. Or the group who understands that they are without strength. Which of those two groups do you think would embrace and enjoy and rest on and and trust in the love of God the most? The ones who were told, you got strength? Or ones who were told, you have no strength. You're without strength. Gang, it has always been true. It seems in the, in the history of the Christian church that the people who have appreciated the love of God the most have always been those who have understood their sinfulness the best. That's a biblical principle, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'm going to say this in a couple of weeks, but um, February the 10th will be our anniversary as a church. February the 10th. In fact, it falls on a Sunday this year. But the first Sunday of um, the first Sunday that we met for worship was February the 10th of 1991. Who was there? You put yourself in a very precarious position now. What was my text? <laughs> uh, almost 11 years ago. You remember that, don't you? My text on the opening Sunday. Uh, gosh, I don't remember your text from last week, much less <laughs> from 11 years ago. But my text, ladies and gentlemen, came, comes out of Luke chapter 7. And that story where Jesus is having uh, lunch with Simon the Pharisee and the, and the prostitute breaks in. A woman of the night breaks in and, and, and anoints Jesus. And, 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 you know, Simon says, you know, um, uh, if he were a prophet, who would, uh, he would know what manner of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And then Simon, and then Jesus engages in dialogue with Jesus uh, with Simon and says, "Simon, I got to I got to ask you a question. There's a guy who owed um, you know fifty denarii, and another guy who owed five thousand denarii, and and the guy to whom both of these debts were owed forgave them both. Now, now tell me this, Simon, what do you think? Uh, which one of those two persons do you think loved the most? 
Simon says, well, it's obvious, it's obvious. Well, the one who, uh, who was forgiven the most. And then he launches into this complaint, which is, I just love this section where, where Jesus says, you know, uh, you know, when I entered here today, you didn't get wash my feet. She did. You gave me nothing to anoint my hand, not my head, but she did. And I mean, the point is that Jesus noticed those, those things that we neglected to do for him. You did know that, didn't you? That Jesus is observant of those neglects. But the point of the story is not that. The point of the story is he concludes by saying, He who has been forgiven much, loves much. Always, the people of God who have been, who have responded in greater amounts of love to the love they've received are the ones who have been most aware of their own wickedness. Now, ladies and gentlemen, please don't misunderstand me. The, the, the love of, that is in view in Romans chapter 5 is not our love to God. No. It is his love to us. But the point is, the way that Paul is trying to convince us of that magnitude is by telling us things about our condition and the awfulness thereof. So the first thing he said is, you're without strength. You ain't got any key in your pocket. <laughs> And there's a, there's a fire a, a brewing out there, and you got no key. You understand that? You are without strength to do anything about your uh, eternal condition. But I loved you. In the midst of you having no strength, I love you. And then he goes on to say that they were uh, ungodly. And, um, you know, that's a term that doesn't baffle too many, I don't think. Uh, it means simply that we're... Not godlike, you know. We're unlike God. We were once uh, made bearing the image of God, but now that image has been terribly defaced and marred, and the and the great cosmic car wreck called the fall. Ungodly, nothing like the source of love. But it's them to whom I've committed my love. And then, of course, we mentioned the other word sinner, which is found uh, in verse uh, 8. And I don't think that we have to much... Um, well, maybe, maybe we should. Do you know there's about five definitions in the, in the New Testament about what sin is? And when you talk about a sinner, you're talking about people who have done all five of these things. You know, uh, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 8, it talks about uh, uh, if you cause someone to stumble... Is sin, but you have sinned too. That's the definition of sin. Well, you've done that. And then uh, he who knows what is in James chapter 5 or 4. He who knows what is right to do and does not do it. It is sin. Uh, The sins of omission. And then there is uh, Romans uh, 11 or 14. Where he says that which is not done of faith is sin. Every time I'm reading a book where I think, should I be reading this? And you can't read it in faith. That is, that's sin, ladies and gentlemen. 
Every time I'm watching a TV show and I think, well, you know, I really shouldn't be watching this, but I'm watching it anyway. That's sin. That's because it's not done. It can't be done. That which is not done of faith is sin. And then First John has a couple of definitions. It calls all lawlessness sin and all unrighteousness sin. All, all I'm saying is pack all five of those together, add them all up, and that's the kind of people for whom God has demonstrated love. Sinners. Any want of or conformity to the law of God. And then in this text, we're going to come back and look at the text a different way in a minute. But um, the other word that he uses is the word enemy. <laughs> now, guys, uh, I have to pause long enough here. And most of you know all this, and I'm sorry to bore you, but it does... <laughs> I was thinking about it last night when I was, I was sitting in my chair last night at home and working on this. And I tried to figure out, because I've been doing weddings. Um, gosh, I graduated from seminary in, in May of uh, 75. And I did a wedding in June of 75. In fact, I had already moved to Ocala, Florida. And the couple, um, the, the mother and daddy of the bride, flew me back. To do this wedding in Mississippi, and and um, uh, I've been doing weddings a long time, and uh, and I, uh, I I do my share, and I'll guarantee it. Um, with this thing, <laughs> I'll get a whole lot more opportunity uh, to to do weddings. But I, I'm gonna let you in a little secret here. Um, I wrote my wedding ceremony 25 years ago. And I do the same one every time. Every time. Poor Bob and Joanne Wood, when you know we were doing singles together, they have heard me do weddings so many times. Bob Wood could do my weddings for me, I promise you. But, um, and, and if you've ever been to a wedding, I really, and this is, I hope, not self-serving, and I hope I'm not, you're not, I hope you don't take this wrongly, but normally I get rave notices about my weddings. People love the weddings that I do. You know, um, they they all come out saying, "Boy, they're really married." Or, uh, "You know how to tie a knot, Bubba." And uh, I said, "Thank you, thank you, thank you. That's very nice of you." <laughs> but um, I have gotten into more trouble. In fact, uh, one wedding I did while I was working at Central, um, I, I don't remember whose wedding it was. But a, um, a man attending the wedding wrote me the nastiest note. And um, I, I don't know whether he put in his phone number or I found his phone number, but I called him. And it um, turns out that he was ethnically Jewish. And um, he was grievously offended. And, and we had, very frankly, you would have been proud of me because it was a nice little dialogue. No, I didn't get ugly with him and tell him what idiot he was. I mean, because I would have been wrong to have done so. That's why I didn't. I mean, but uh, it was a nice little dialogue between me and this man. And uh, But maybe you already know the punchline, but in my wedding ceremonies, I use this word. Enemies. I had this little statement in there where I say, um, ladies and gentlemen, um, uh, most of what I will say to uh, in this wedding ceremony, I'm going to address to the bride and the bridegroom. But for a moment, I'd like to speak with you. 
Is that right, Bob? Or did I get it right? <laughs> um, I'd like to speak with you. And so I kind of look around the bride and the groom and I say, I'd like to speak with the audience just for a second. And you may think it a bit odd that I have begun my wedding ceremony by asking these two people whether they're Christians. You know, are, are you a Christian? I mean, I have this little thing where I ask them whether they're true believers or not, Jesus Christ. You may think it a bit odd that I do this. Um, and, um, and let me tell you why I do it. I just want you to understand why I start off asking these people if they're Christians. Uh, because, you see, I uh, am bound by conscience to, uh, to live as best I know how under the mandates and dictates of the Scripture. And the Bible says that those who are outside of Christ are enemies. And what in Sam Hill am I doing up here marrying two people who are the enemies of God? What, would that, what, what, what sense would that make? So, I'm saying to you, if you come to Christ, you cease your enmity and you become a son or a daughter. And so, it's my privilege, my esteemed privilege, to marry one of his sons to one of his daughters. And I say that in the wedding ceremony. Well, most people either like that or tolerate it. But if anybody is ever offended, it's over that word enemy. You can call me a liberal. You can call me a, you can call me a, a traditionalist. You can call me um, unchurched. You can call me a lot of things. But do not call me an enemy of God's. I don't give one whit about what's going on in the church of Jesus Christ, but do not call me. Do not you dare call me an enemy of God. I am not an enemy of God. And you know, as I sat in my chair last night, I started thinking, why, Jimmy? Why did you choose that word when you were forming that wedding ceremony 25 years ago? I don't remember. <laughs> But I wouldn't take it out now. But, but the point is, ladies and gentlemen, those who are outside of Christ, you can call them pagans, but don't call them enemies. They do not like to conceive of themselves as enemies of God. But I want you to know that before you came to Christ, that's what you were and I was. God, by the way, do you know why the New Testament tells you to love your enemies? Because God loved his. I'm supposed to be like him and he loved his enemies. Which would be you and me. Now, in the, in the logic of the Apostle Paul, that is supposed to make us think, Ooh, what height and depth and breadth and width there is to the love of God. That he would love enemies. That's what, this that's what this passage is supposed to be doing for us. Please. Is it doing that for you? I hope. As you, as you grapple with. Am I loved? Guys. From time to time. Um, I get the privilege of. Dealing with people who are wrestling with. That question. Am I loved? Am I the object of his love? 
I did so just recently with a young woman who um, had uh, blown it in the past. And of course, what she was asking is, how could I possibly be loved by God after all I've done? Does that question ever hit you at night when you have blown it? Um, <laughs> I shouldn't tell you all this. Um, but on the ski trip, I, I, I did a bad thing. This place that Randy had us um, housed had some very wonderful uh, assets to it. It kept all the kids together. You know, you know, they were out in the middle of nowhere. You couldn't get into trouble. Uh, you know, there was no, no, no known sin within miles. Uh, and, uh, but um, it's a hotel that was built in... 37, 1837, <laughs> and um, it just wasn't the swankiest place. And, and you know, I have the same problem as does Cheryl Harbor, who whose whose standard in life is uh, if there's any question, upgrade. <laughs> so, so here we are in this place, and you know, I I struggle, as you know, um, with the issue of sleep. Still do, and and I wish you continue to pray, but I. I, I still do, um, but be that as it may, you know I'm in a motel, and you know, and there's there's all these kids in this same motel, and um, they don't think that 9:30 is a decent going to bed hour. <laughs> <laughs> the little twits, and um, and you know you skied all day, and you're tired, and, you know they ought to be going to bed at 9:30. I know you'll all agree. Well, anyway, um, being the kind and and understanding person that I am, um, I took it until 11.30. And I mean, they were up and down. I mean, they had their doors open. They were following the guys were in the girls' door. They were screaming up and down the hall. And and, um, (laughs) maybe I should just let you fill in the blanks. (laughs) Let your imagination run wild. (laughs) But... I got up out of the bed and I put some pants on and I went out in that hall and I think I was my eyes were you know half glazed over in the first place and I said what are you doing in this hall? You know, I didn't do it exactly that bad, but I mean it was it was such that my wife doesn't like to talk about it. And I said get in your rooms. And and, and <laughs> they did. <laughs> it was. They probably could have shot me, but they, they, they got into their rooms. And, and, but the point is, I, w- I didn't sleep for hours after that. And, and one of the things that, that got me was, who are you? What did you just do? That was really, that was really bad. You know? Um... Can God love somebody after all I've done? You know, it gets far worse at night. Satan's fangs get far bigger at night, don't they? My point is this. In terms of answering that question, if you've ever asked it, my dear brother and sister, here's your answer. 
within the confines of these four, five, six verses, here is the answer. He loves those without strength. That's what you're like. You're ungodly, you're a sinner, and you were an enemy. And what that ought to do for us is say, holy moly. Oh, the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of the love of God for people like me. That, that's, that's, the, that's the Pauline strategy here in these few verses. Um, let me see if I can throw a couple of other things in here. We'll quit. Um, yeah. Um, there's also something that he is doing, and you can, you can see it. You can see it in verse 9, you can see it in verse 10, you can see it in verse 15, you can see it in verse 17. Um, He mentions this, look at verse 9. Much more than, he does it in uh, verse 10, much more, verse 15, you'll find the same words, much more, and you'll find it in 17. Much more. Um, Guys, uh, in theological circles, those are known as... A fortiori. A fortiori arguments. What it simply, I mean, an a fortiori, a fortiori argument is simply if the greater benefit has been bestowed, then the less will not be withheld. If the greater benefit has been bestowed, the less of a benefit will not be withheld. That's an a fortiori argument. Now, guys, and the Apostle Paul is doing it. He does it four times in this chapter. Now, first of all, I, I, I want to say this. Do you, do you notice what, and, and maybe we'll stop with this, and we'll come back and finish it next week, but uh, what he is doing is that he's reasoning. He's reasoning with his audience. He has entered into dialogue. He has entered into debate. He is saying, if this has happened, then how much more this? And if you'll notice, the, the, the big thing is the wrath of God. Look at verse 9. Much more than having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. Here's how it goes, guys. The premise of verse 9 is, okay, you're justified by His blood then the inference that is to be drawn is that we shall, with greater certainty, be saved from wrath. That's how the argument goes. Do you see that? If you have been justified by blood, then how much greater certainty you can have of avoiding the wrath of God. And isn't that what we're trying to do, guys? At least one of the things. And Paul is reasoning and arguing with his audience. He is reasoning with them based on this, then this is the conclusion. This is this, then this is, this, is this is the outcome or the result of the argument. Guys, my point is simply this. In some Christian circles, the whole idea of entering into dialogue and argument and debate over the things of God is considered carnal. And I say to you, the Apostle Paul is using dialogue. He is using debate. He is using logical strategy to try and convince people of of an issue. I, I would say this. It's not the best way to win people to Christ. But it is a way. Apologetics. 
You see, Christians aren't people who simply have a certain set of feelings. But Christians are people who, at their essence, are people who grasp truth and know how to reason from that truth, which is what the Apostle Paul is doing here in this section. They understand truth and they know how to reason based on it. And that is, that is genuinely a wonderful thing to be doing for some of you. And in some instances, to, 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 to try and reach people through reasoned dialogue. <clears throat> now, I'll close with this. I, I don't think it's the best way. The best way to win folks to Christ. I mean, it's, it's a way, and it's a, a way that many of us ought to be able to use and master. Certainly, we ought to have answers to questions that people bring to us so that we can reason based on what we know to be true. We are people of the truth, ladies and gentlemen, and we ought to be able to reason therefrom. But the best way is when somebody sees some instance of sacrificial love displayed in us towards somebody who didn't deserve it. That's when they say Jesus. When something that we have done displays that we know something about loving the undeserved or the undeserving. Um, you know, guys, we find that very difficult to do. Uh, we find it difficult to demonstrate sacrificial love for our spouses and we love them but the people who I think are going to sit up and take notice and listen to the gospel that we have to preach are those who watch us relating to one another relating to children relating to the neighbors relating shouldn't say that Relating to liberals, relating to homosexuals, relating to abortionists, that we can demonstrate love for our enemies. You know, I'll say this and I'll shut up. I, uh, I, am, I said that I am just as much opposed to abortion as anybody in this room, but I have been, I have taken some shots. Because um, I've been approached on a couple of occasions to put the uh, crosses in the, you know, you've seen the crosses gathered in the front yard. and um, To do other things that are more demonstrative in terms of our support of uh, anti-abortion movement. And um, I, I, I hope you know that I, I think abortion is murder. And we'll all be, always, always be steadfastly opposed. But I learned this. I learned this from Jimmy Latimer. I don't want them to be, I don't want to be known to them based on what I'm against. I want to be known to them based on who I represent. I want to fight those social evils, but ladies and gentlemen, the world is not one to Christ through legislation. It is one 
when you decide that you're going to cozy up to your next door neighbor who is uh, running around on his wife and befriend him in such a way that you will not, uh, that you will demonstrate the same kind of sacrificial love. Oh, no, a little bit of the same kind of sacrificial love that, that we've experienced. That's when people wonder, would you get that? And notice it because it really stands out. We'll come back and wrap up this text next week. Let's quit. Our Father, um, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Deep love for people who are enemies or once were, who are without strength, who are ungodly, who are guilty of all five of those definitions of sin. Oh, God, might that impress us with our, our, the awfulness of our condition? Not so that we can feel awful, but so that we can sense the magnitude of the love of God for people such as us. Father, uh, it's a hard thing to believe. It, it probably is the hardest thing there is to believe that you love a bunch who have blown it in secret ways that we want nobody to know about, but that you could, oh God. Might this reasoned argument and presentation by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit bring to your people great balm for their souls that they would never again wrestle with the enemy over the certainty of their condition. Might security be the very watchword of this little flock known as Gracie Van. Not because we've done so well, but because we know the height and the depth and the breadth and the width and the length. We know some of it about the love of God. Father, give that to me. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.